Exodus 19. So here's, here's just kind of the, the outline that we've been looking through as we're going through Exodus here. So chapters 1 to 12 was looking at domination where Israel had been brought into Egypt and they were under now this kind of, uh, it, it got intense there for them as the Pharaoh came onto the scene that didn't remember Joseph, didn't know the history of Israel and he got worried about them. He started to treat them brutally, heavy bondage upon them, made them work harder than they normally did. <clears throat> and so they saw domination the bondage of Egypt. Then we saw liberation, the breakout from Egypt. And of course, that's really the theme of Exodus is, is this redemptive plan of God and delivering his people out of Egypt, which is a picture of the world and being under kind of the sway and domination of the world and how we ourselves were in that place, needed to be freed from sin, delivered out of sin. And God has done that for us. So there's liberation. Well, tonight, we continue on looking at the revelation, the bringing of the law, and then identification, which is the birth pains of the nation, and just how God is instructing Moses in really trying to bring the people as a nation together to be those that are kind of following in line with what God has for them. So revelation, and then identification tonight. Chapter 19 is kind of a, a, a chapter that's sort of a, a, an, an in-between chapter, because here we've seen them getting delivered out of Egypt and an incredible work, the 10 plagues, and then God just, you know, busts them out. He delivers them through the Red Sea and now they're traveling through the wilderness and they arrive upon Mount Sinai, okay? And it's here on Mount Sinai that God begins to call out to them and God speaks to, to the people and he speaks to Moses. It says in chapter 19, look at verse 5. Chapter 19, verse 5, here they are on Mount Sinai, God speaking to them. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So this is God's desire for them, that they be a, a, a special people, that they be a, a kingdom of priests unto the Lord. God wanted to preserve these people. God wanted to use these people and not just them alone exclusively, but to be a people that he will again bring the Messiah through, bring the good news of Jesus Christ through, that he's gonna bless these people and use them to bless the whole world ultimately. So this is what God is speaking to them and, and calling out to them for. And so he's instructing them and in this, God says, again, just that they're that special treasure to him. God has a special plan for them. And so the people, now they're hearing all these words of the Lord as God is speaking to, to Moses and the people. They're hearing all these things now. And they answer with great intentions. It says in verse 8, Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. All that God has spoken, we will do. Now, he hasn't even gotten into the heavy stuff yet, all right? And yet, once he does, they're still going to answer with that same kind of note. And so, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the purpose of the law and why God is bringing the law, because that's what he's leading them up to here now in chapter 20. Their, their idea is, God, whatever you say, we're going to do, all right? But they're going to be in for a bit of a surprise because they're going to recognize that they don't have it in them to do it 
or at least they don't realize that right now, but they're going to find out very quickly. They don't have it in them to do what God is ultimately instructing them to do. The fatal flaw of the law is the weakness of the human heart to keep it. That's the problem of the law. That didn't become totally clear until Christ came onto the scene. We're going to discuss that in a bit here. But here on this mountain, all right, the holiness of God was certainly made known because there's just great, you know, kind of, um, oh, just a great scene. Look at verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. Verse 18. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire, its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. That's incredible right there, right? Did you imagine that? Now the problem becomes when we're awaiting an encounter like that for God to speak to us, where we think, I need to see things rumbling i need to see smoke i need to see lightning earthquake i need to hear an audible voice sometimes we think "Ah, god doesn't speak to me because we're expecting something like that that's not always the way it's going to be in fact I i would say it's rarely going to be like that this is a special occasion that's taking place here in fact like we saw with elijah when he's on the run He's waiting for God to speak to him, but he's not in the, in the wind, in the fire, in the earthquake. It's a still small voice that comes to Elijah. That's oftentimes the way that God's going to speak to you. It's just going to be something that he's, he's prompting the heart. We know Hebrews chapter 1 begins by saying that, you know, in, in recent uh, or in, in times past, he spoke through the prophets and things, but now he's spoken through his son. He speaks through Jesus Christ and ultimately we find the revelation of Jesus Christ in the word of God. You want God to speak to you? Get into the word of God. So many times we're thinking, well, God, I just don't know what God has for me. I'm just waiting for him to speak to me. Just open up the word of God and begin to to read through scripture with a heart that's saying, God, speak to me, instruct me, and he will. Because this is the way that God is gonna speak to us. More times than not, today, It's not through a a trembling, quaking, fire mountain as they're experiencing here. It's going to be through that still small voice, the word of God just prompting you. Seek fellowship with the Lord. Be in his word and you will hear his voice, I believe. Well, chapter 20, of course, you know this chapter. It's a great chapter. It's the, the giving of the law, God's top 10 list. The 10 commandments are put on two tablets And they're divided up into two parts. Commands relating to God, the vertical plane, and then commands that are related to our our, our fellow, you know, are are relating to others. Basically the horizontal now, okay? So we've got ten commandments. The first four really are geared towards our relationship with God. The last six are geared towards our relationship with others. And notice these commands are not all action or an outward nature many of them of course are you know we know them right don't have any other you know gods before you don't make any idols um don't don't steal don't commit adultery don't murder a a lot of these are are outward actions yes and there's a lot of times that we are looking to try to really reform ourselves right we're looking at things going okay i gotta try harder i gotta do better i don't want to be walking in a way where I'm breaking God's law. And so we do things on an outward level so often. And yet that last commandment, right, comes on the scene and says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now remember Paul the apostle, as he's writing, he says, you know what? It wasn't until the last commandment that really slayed me. 
He's like, man, I thought I was doing well until I came in contact with just really the understanding of that, that thou shalt not covet. That's something that takes place on the inward part. It's something from the heart. That's something we don't do on an outward, uh, outward level, but it's internal. And a lot of times we think we're doing well. There's a lot of people that'll say, oh, I, I keep the commandments. I live by the Ten Commandments. And they think they're doing well because they haven't murdered anybody in the last little while, you know. They haven't committed adultery. They, they haven't, you know, stolen money. They, they think they're doing well. But what they fail to see is that God takes it to a whole other level when he looks at the internal. You know, Jesus comes on the scene. He says, this has been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But, you know, whoever looks at another person with lust in their eyes, it's as though they commit adultery in the heart. You've, you've heard it's been said not to murder. But if you hate your brother, it's as though you've committed murder in your own heart. So Jesus brings it to that internal level too. And he says, listen, it goes well beyond just an outward level and outward nature. Trying to reform yourself to say, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to do good. It's about what's in the heart. And that's something that we like to hide. We like to do things because we can get away with things. Nobody else knows, nobody sees. But we fail to recognize that God sees. God's looking at the heart. And that's what's judging us oftentimes is our very hearts. And that's something that God sees. Well, the law is given here in chapter 20. Now, as I mentioned a minute ago, the law would never be able to be followed and obeyed perfectly. So the question then is, why was the law even given? Why did God even give the law if he knew that we would fail miserably in trying to keep it and observe it. Well, first of all, it was given to expose our sin nature. Romans 7, 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness, covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. That's where Paul was slain. I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known about sin ultimately unless it was for that last commandment. Secondly, why the law was given? To incite the sin nature to sin more. You listen to that and you go, well, that doesn't, that seems weird. Well, Romans 7, 8 says, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Right? You put a bowl of candy in front of a child and you say, do not touch that. They're like now incited to go, uh, I want it. I want to have some of that. The fact that I'm not allowed to have it makes me want to have it all the more. And it's kind of what the, what the law does. Thirdly, to drive us to despair of self-effort. Romans 7, 24 to 25 says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So it brings us to the point where we realize we're in despair. Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do the things that I don't want to do, those things I do. What am I going to do? Who's going to deliver me? It brings us to that point where we realize we can't do it on our own. And so it drives us to this last point, number four. It drives us to dependence on the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 3, 4, for what the law could not do and that it was weak to the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemns in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Man, I love that. It drives us to a greater dependence on the Holy Spirit, knowing that we can't do it on ourselves. God doesn't expect us to do it on ourselves. He's given us the Holy Spirit. 
And so today we understand that the work of Jesus has superseded the law now today. Romans 10, 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, we understand as Romans 1, 16 tells us that, that, you know, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and the salvation, right? It's a work now that, that God does through the Holy Spirit from within. It's transformation, not reformation that we're looking for. We don't try to follow the law to reform ourselves. We look to the work that Jesus has accomplished for us, who's given us the Holy Spirit now to transform us and enable us to live a, a righteous life, dependent on Christ's righteousness. Now, a lot of people today still get caught up in thinking, well, we got to live by the law. we got to uphold the law. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with the law. So don't get me wrong here. Don't, don't think that I'm saying the law is bad. The law is not bad. The law is not wrong. The law is good. It's just that we're not going to be made right with God by keeping the law because we'll always fall short, right? That's what Romans 3 tells us. We're always going to come up short. So we need someone greater. It, that's why Jesus came on in the scene who is an end to the law so that now our righteousness is found by faith in Jesus and not by applying the law. And there are so many today that still try to put themselves under the law. And it's a shame. So that's not what God desires. It's, it's, it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to give us life and life to the full. The law cannot do that, you see. Now, before moving on out of chapter 20, the, the end of chapter 20, verse 22 to 26, gives a special instruction now given for an altar. Pick it up in verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not, not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So that's a very interesting situation. Now this altar, instruction for this altar is given and the altar would demonstrate for the people that the way to approach God is through a sacrifice. That's why you have an altar is for sacrifice. They're the shedding of blood. The way to God would come through the shedding of blood and it required a sacrifice. And this altar was not to be perfected by tools, okay? It, it, in other words, we're to come to God very simply and humbly, right? We're not to try to approach God by cleaning ourselves up, by trying to perfect ourselves, by making ourselves better, as a lot of people do. Look at what I'm bringing to the table, God. I've got about 70% righteousness. All I need is just maybe 30% more from you, God. And we try to think that we've got a part to play in that. So it's interesting, the altar, don't, don't put your tool to it. Don't, don't try to perfect it. Don't try to beautify it in any way. I think it's a good picture for us too. That as we come to the Lord, we're not to try to beautify ourselves. and We're not to try to make ourselves better. We're to come humbly and say, God, I am flawed. I'm a sinner. And I come only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's the only way by which I can approach you, God, is through what Jesus did for me. And that's, that's the kind of sacrifice that God accepts. That's the humility that, that God will take. And so there's some other stuff about there, about you know, not having steps so that uh, 
A man walking up there with a robe will not be exposing himself. I'll let you study that on your own. We'll just move on from there. Okay, chapters 21 to 23 now are really detailing various laws now. So we got the big 10. We got the 10 commandments and everything's really summed up in that. Remember when somebody approached Jesus trying to corner him, what's the greatest of the commandments? What does Jesus say? Well, so the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So remember, we got two parts, laws related to God, laws related to others. And so Jesus kind of summed it up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love others as yourself. So those are the big 10. Jesus sums it up into two. But now, uh, you know, there's many other kind of various laws and instructions that are given to Moses that we see through chapter 21 to 23. There's various civil laws and there's various religious laws that are are given of a religious level as well. So chapter 21, verse 1 to 11, first of all, it regards um, Hebrew servants. It says in verse 1, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. All right? So there is regulations that were put now onto the treatment of, of servants. They're to serve six years, and they're released in the seventh. And God's established that kind of important principle of six and one. He created the heavens and the earth and all that's in it. Six days, seventh day he rested. Six and one, right? Even in, in regards to their fields, they were to sow their fields six years, and then the seventh day let it rest. All right? And so there were all these, this principle of, of six and one. It's interesting, um, and, and you can take this for what it is, but in the Jewish calendar, they, they go through the years continuously from you know the beginning of creation, which they uh, believe to up to now, the year 2018, we're sitting at 5,779 in the Jewish calendar. Some wonder if the, the messianic age now Six, so we're approaching the end of 6,000 years. Six and one. Are we getting ready to enter into this period of rest, this messianic age, which comes at the millennial reign, which is for a thousand years? We've had 6,000 years of history coming in the thousandth year. It could be. It's interesting. That's uh, food for thought there for you. But let's not get bogged down by that. We'll move on. So, um, so the law of the servant, let them go in the seventh year. Now, here's the thing, is if this servant, now it goes on to say, if this servant loves serving his master, he's made just a good living here, he's got a good home, the master cares for him, he's well provided for and supported, and he doesn't want to go anywhere else, he can choose after that sixth year, say, I, I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to stay here. I love working here, I love serving you. I want to just be your, your servant for life. Well, then the master would take him out to the, the, the doorpost or the gate and he would pierce his ear with an awl in the gate there. And he would become a, a bondservant. Remember, Paul would oftentimes refer to himself as that, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Meaning, I have chosen to follow Christ. There's nothing better than I can find anywhere else. I want to live my life devoted to Jesus. That's what a bondservant would do. And that's the option they had is to stay loyal, to stay committed to the master that they were serving. Well, in verse 12, we see laws concerning retribution. Verse 12 to 27, laws concerning retribution. So if a person committed murder, the death penalty was just. 
The death penalty is also given for kidnappers, also given for those that abuse their parents, mistreat their parents. So you young kids here, just take that to heart, all right? Good thing we're not living under the law today, but uh, death penalty for that kind of a thing. And God said in verse 24, notice that there, he said it was to be an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, a lot of times people think that's given there to say we need to have equal kind of vengeance. So if you've wronged me, then I get to do this back to you. That's what a lot of people think of, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But you see, what God is saying here is he's saying, listen, I want to curb revenge. I want to I make sure that we're not going beyond what we should be doing. Because human nature says, I don't want to just get even. I want to get one up. That's the way that I oftentimes live. If you threw a cup of water on me, I'm getting a bucket of water and I'm going to just drench you, right? It's not, you know, it wasn't eye for an eye. It was like, I want to make sure this person really thinks twice about getting me next time because they know I'm going to come back twice as hard. That's kind of human nature oftentimes. Is it just me or are you with me on that? Anybody else? Okay, thank you. I'm worried that maybe I just have a real much bigger sin problem than the rest of you, but... That's the way I would oftentimes operate. That's kind of human nature. And so it's in the word. God says, listen, I'm putting that here not to say this is the mandatory, you know, payback that if they've wronged you, you've got to pay them back. It's, I want to make sure that you're not going beyond what you need to do. So God wants to be just in these things. All right. And so God's laying that all out here. Laws concerning retribution or, um, you know, violence. That's, that's too much. And then in chapter 22, we look at restitution for property. Chapter 22, if a person stole another person's livestock or ripped them off financially, they would have to ensure that they paid it back. And then in verse 16 to the middle of chapter 23, these were laws regarding civil obligations, all right? And so this section deals with a number of things, all the way from mistreating a virgin, to sorcery, to bestiality, to perjury. God, I mean, these are a lot of sad and kind of wicked things that are going on, but it's all the way back in Exodus because, again, the the sin nature of humanity. And so God is looking to kind of put some terms on these things and put some kind of boundaries on these things here to restrict it to make sure that things are not getting carried out of hand god wanted his people to treat one another civilly kindly with grace and respect and so god's putting all these laws in a place of a very civil nature chapter 23 verse 10 look over there we see the law of the sabbath and we get into um, a number of different religious observations now, various feasts that, that are coming onto the scene. So in, in the law of the Sabbath, they were to sow the land again for six years and then let it rest during the seventh year. Now remember, part of the reason why uh, the, the nation of Judah was taken away into captivity to Babylon was because they failed to 
observed the Sabbath. They didn't get it on rest. There's a whole lot of other reasons. I mean, they were completely in rebellion to God. But we're going to see as we wrap up Second Chronicles in just a couple weeks here that it says at the end of the chapter, uh, chapter 36, verse 21, um, that they're taken to Babylon to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. All right? There's that period of time where they were not fulfilling the Sabbath for every seventh year. And so God says, all right, I'm going to take you into captivity for 70 years. Give the land the rest that it never had. All right? So that was an important principle here. And then we see these three great feasts that are to be observed. Look at verse 14 of chapter 23. Here's what it says. Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, which you have sown in the field. And the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your mail shall appear before the Lord your God. So God ordains these three annual feasts that the people are required to observe. All the males are required to come to Jerusalem and observe this. The three feasts, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now that, that commemorated their exodus and how they were to remove all leaven and not wait for breads to rise. Um, you know, and so rise with leaven. So they were to clear out the leaven, uh, bake bread that didn't rise so they could move in haste out of Egypt, all right, the Exodus. So that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It comes right after Passover. So it's kind of, you know, this feast that sort of blends together. Then there's the Feast of Harvest. And that's also called Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And that commemorated the the giving of the law here at Sinai. Um, And then the third feast, the Feast of Ingathering. And that also is called the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was commemorating God's provision for the people as they were traveling through the wilderness for those 40 years before they entered the promised land. And so, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles, even to this day, it's a feast that, that the kids in, in Israel just love to celebrate because they get to camp out. They, they build these, these, these temporary shelters or tents and they just camp out for the week. That's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering there. It commemorated their time through the wilderness and how God provided for them. But these feasts also have a very prophetic element to them. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it pictures the redemption from sin that Jesus provided for us on the cross. We're now cleansed or forgiven from sin, which is, again, that picture of leaven. The Feast of Harvest speaks of the birth of the church because the birth of the church happened when? On the day of Pentecost. So here it is, Pentecost. At Pentecost, the first Pentecost, I mean, the law is given, but then at that Pentecost, there the church gathered together, and it's the birth of the church, all right? And then uh, the Feast of Ingathering looks ahead to the millennium when Israel will be dwelling securely in their own land once again. So these three feasts, they recall to us redemption, provision, and protection. All right? Redemption, delivered out of Egypt, provision, and then protection as they're traveling through the wilderness. And you know what I love about these feasts and, and God's you know, ordaining these feasts for them all to come together is that God loves fellowship. 
God wants people to gather together. And not only is it remembering what God did, that's a, a huge part of it, celebrating what God did, but it's celebrating it together. And that's why, you know, Hebrews 10 says, do not forsake the assembling of the brethren. Let's be those that are continuing to gather together because God is into that. God desires that for his people to, to gather together in his name and celebrate and worship him. And so he's ordaining these feasts where that's going to be happening. Well, before we get into chapter 24, we see that God, at the end of chapter 23, verse 20 to 33, God just in, uh, assures them and, and encourages them that he's going to be with them. He's going to guide them. And he's going to do so through this angel of promise. He says in verse 20, behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So God's going to go before them. And we know that he did in the wilderness. He was a pillar of fire at night, a, a cloud by day, protecting them from the sun, fire at night to keep them warm. But here this angel is going to go before them. We see, again, that angel of the Lord that was oftentimes on the scene, delivering them from certain predicaments and situations. Well, chapter 24, Moses comes down with the law, and he told all the people all the words of the Lord. And they, with great intentions, look at verse, um, oh boy, let's see. Oh, end of verse 3. Let's just read verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, all right? Which is, is just speaking about all these ordinances and laws that he's just passed on to Moses. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. Woo! We got this, right? We're going, no problem. We got it, right? I mean, again, great intentions. God love them, but... It took all of 40 days for them to royally blow this, right? It didn't take long before they start building an idol, a golden calf. They should have said, Lord, help us to do them. You know, as Christians, we too, I think, can get pretty confident and then very conflicted when we fail in what we have determined to do, what we have set out to do. That's why we need to realize our weakness, right? And lean upon God's strength just to live a godly life. We need to say, Lord, help us. Every day we wake up, we need to say, Lord, help us. It reminds me of that, that, that prayer that was prayed by a man. It says, Lord God, it's been a good day. I haven't sinned. I haven't you know, sworn or cussed. I haven't done anything wrong by anybody today. It's been a good day, but uh, I'm going to be getting out of bed in a second. And I'm going to really need your help then. See, that's the way it is for us. We might think there's times where we're doing really good and, oh, we've got this. And we get very confident in ourselves and all of a sudden we stumble, we fall and we get very conflicted, we get very down. But we have to realize every day, we don't got this. We can't do it. All the words that you said, God, we would love to do, but we need your help in this. So we're relying on you, we're depending on you. And that should be the attitude we have of, of humility and trust in what... The Lord can do, and, and, and God will help us when we ask him to help us because he's given us the helper, the paracletos, the Holy Spirit, to come alongside, to enable us and empower us to live this life for him. So now, in the rest of chapter 24, Moses goes up the mountain where he's going to be 40 days and 40 nights, and he's going to be receiving further instruction from the Lord that's going to direct the people in the proper worship now of the Lord. Look at verse 18 with me here of chapter 24. Verse 18 says this, So Moses went into the midst of the cloud 
and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Chapter 25, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and goat's hair. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood. Oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So God is setting uh, Moses up. He's saying, tell the children of Israel to bring all these things to me. These are going to be things that are going to be used for now the tabernacle. They're going to be used for the the materials of the tabernacle. They're going to be used for certain parts of the garments for the high priest. And so Moses is getting instruction now to build this sanctuary, this tabernacle, so that God can come and dwell among them. Now, It's interesting because the people of Israel here, they're going to be, for a while now, camping out in the wilderness, right? And so what's God's desire? Well, I'm going to come alongside and camp out with you. Build me a tent. It's oftentimes called the, the tent of meeting. Because God wanted me with his people and he's going to do so in a tent, just like how everybody else is living right now. And so God desired to be with them. I think that's just so cool. And understand, this wasn't going to be anything ornate or overwhelming of a structure this tabernacle is going to be very simple it's going to look very beautiful from within but from outside it's not going to be anything much to behold it's going to be very plain very like oh really that's the place that you built for your god it's not going to look like much but inside it would just be beautiful the artwork that would be on the inside, the, the design, the furnishings, be beautiful to behold. It's oftentimes the way it is for Christians, isn't it? Where once you step in and you receive a Jesus Christ, you begin to see how wonderful, how beautiful it is. You can tell people all you want and they look at it from the outside and they're going, not the whole Christianity thing. I don't get it. It doesn't look too appealing to me. And, and it may not be, but once they take that step of faith, they step in and receive Jesus. Suddenly they begin to see, oh, man, this is so much better than I imagined. This is beautiful. What Jesus has done for me, this is incredible. That's kind of how the tabernacle was. So chapter 25 to 27 now is really just the instructions for the building of the tabernacle with all the various furnishings and articles of the tabernacle. Chapter 25 begins with instruction being given for an offering. People were to bring that offering willingly, it said. Bring it willingly. And it'd be for the building of the tabernacle. But let's take a little tour through this here now. We'll put up some pictures to show the various things that are being talked about. So first up, here in verse 10 of chapter 25, is the Ark of the Covenant. Raiders of the Lost Ark fans, anybody? All right, okay, there you go. Raiders of the Lost, that's it. So here's the Ark of the Testimony. It's the first thing mentioned regarding the tabernacle as we go through it in the book of Exodus here. The ark contained the law. These are the two tablets that Moses had, the, uh, had received uh, of this instruction, the, the Ten Commandments on. And so these two tablets were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to find out later that 
the rod that budded that Aaron had. It's also placed in there as well as a jar of manna. It's placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So those things are there. And so this Ark of the Covenant, and especially the, the, the tablets, the, the law that was in there, really represents the righteousness of God. And on the lid here, you see two cherubim. And they were to stand and they would have their wings outstretched facing each other. And again, this really represented God's glory. Cherubim were often seen as kind of that view in heaven. Ezekiel talked a lot about the the cherubim that were there around God's glory and God's presence. So on the lid of these cherubim, a visible manifestation of God's glory. And then the ark had a lid. And it's called the mercy seat. That's where the priest would come and, and apply the blood of a sacrifice. Only one person could do it, the high priest, and only could do it one day of the year, the day of atonement. But there was blood required upon that mercy seat. So the law is there, but we can't meet, we've already seen, we can't, we can't meet the high demands of the righteousness of the law. But God here, where the law sits, provides a place of mercy. The mercy seat. Look at verse 22 with me, at chapter 25. Verse 22 says, or sorry, back up one, verse 21. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, above everything, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. I love that. There, at the mercy seat, there, I will meet with you. That's important. Because between God's judgment and his law, there's a place of forgiveness and fellowship. 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation or mercy seat. That's the idea behind the mercy seat. That term mercy seat implies propitiation. We have one, an advocate. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. See, Jesus' sinless life satisfies the righteous requirements of God for us. It's through Jesus that we can come and meet with God and have an audience with God. It's through Jesus Christ that God can say, it's through him that I will meet with you. And God provided that for the people back here. It's a place of mercy that God will meet with you. So I can be through the law. So I can be through observance of the law, carrying out God's heavy standard of righteousness. It won't be through that because he can't do it. But he provides a place of mercy. And it's there that he'll meet with you. It's always through mercy and grace that we come to God. And we find that in and through Jesus Christ today. Well, the next thing that we come across in chapter 25 is the table of showbread. Here's what the table of showbread looked like. And it's found in verse 23 to verse 30. This sat in the holy place, and we'll, we'll get a look at the whole tabernacle in a second here. But that sat in the holy place, and it was to hold all the bread there that was to be before God always. He says, 12 loaves of bread were to be there, as there are 12 what? Tribes of Israel. So representing each of the tribes of Israel. This bread was also to be for the, sustain, the, the sustenance sorry, of the priests. This is to be their food for them on the Sabbath. They were allowed to eat this bread. Is provision for them. Jesus says, he is the bread of life. And we too find our sustenance and our provision in him. 
So the table of showbread, then we move to the golden lampstand in verse 31. The golden lampstand was to light up the tabernacle, all right? No light switch, there's no electricity. You got a lampstand in there that's going to provide light in the, in, in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, in the evening time. And Jesus himself says, I'm the light of the world. Now there's seven branches there as you see. Six branches and one main stem, or seven lamps I should say. Six branches, one main stem. It brings to mind what Jesus says in, in John 15, verse 5, when he says, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So it reminds us that if we're not connected to Jesus, if we're not abiding in him, we're going to be lacking. We're not going to have any light that's going to be dispelling the darkness. We need to be connected to Jesus. That's the only way that we we have that light, that we have that strength to be what we need to be in this world. So it's wrapped up in Jesus. He's the light of the world. And then we see, now in chapter 26, just further instruction for the, the tabernacle as a whole. And so the tabernacle will look like this. This is the whole courtyard of the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle is just that part towards the back there that you see half of it's removed with the curtains just to, to give you a glimpse into it. And we'll get a close-up of that in a second here. But that structure, just the tabernacle part in the courtyard, that stood 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, all right? And so the tabernacle had various layers of curtains placed over it. Again, on the inside of that, the curtain was very artistic, very, uh, you know, beautiful to behold, but the outside was nothing great, all right? Um, it says it was badger skin. Some believe it was just like, like porpoise skins, perhaps, right? And so it just would have been very bland, very plain to look at from the outside, but very beautiful inside. And the tabernacle was divided up into, into two main rooms. Look at verse 31 with me of chapter 26. We're going to read a few verses here. So it says this, verse 31, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet, thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. Verse 33, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. So here you'll see now close up. You got the most holy place in there. And then a veil, a curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place. Again, the most holy place, only the high priest could go into. And only that one day of the year, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And so here the holy place is where these other things are. And it says in verse 34... You shall put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Covenant. So there's the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. You shall set the table outside the veil. The table of the showbread is outside the veil. Be to your right when you walk in. And the lampstand across from the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So again, just the, the whole place there, there's one door that you'd walk into the courtyard and then up to the tabernacle. We'll look at what those other two things are there that we haven't talked about yet. 
And that's coming up here. So chapter 27 touches on that first part, the altar of burnt offering. So here's the altar of burnt offering. It's that first structure that you saw in the courtyard. And this is where, of course, sacrifices would be made here. The first thing you'd come to when you came into the, the tabernacle or the courtyard of the tabernacle was this altar. Again, a reminder that we can't come before God without a sacrifice. It's not that we bring something to the table, but rather that we recognize our need for Jesus' sacrifice for us today to make us whole and clean, to make us right with God. We need a sacrifice, and that's what Jesus has provided for us. That's the first thing you'd come upon. And then it talks about the court of the tabernacle. As you, you saw back there, again, the, the whole court of the tabernacle. The court of the tabernacle was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. The, the, the fence around was seven and a half feet high. And then we see the care of the lampstand, verse 20 of chapter 27. It says there... You shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So there's the tabernacle. There's all the furnishings of the tabernacle. There's a couple things that we haven't mentioned yet. It's coming up. The altar of incense and the bronze laver. And we'll get to those in a second here. But that's the, the, the tabernacle that God desires. And he's given Moses instruction right now. He's up on the mountain of how to build it. And uh, again, that's going to be the place that God says, it's here that I'm going to meet with you. I want to I dwell among you. I want to have that place where you can approach me and, and, and come to me. All right. So God's also going to have to have some people that are going to serve this, and that's where the priesthood comes into play. And now in chapter 28, we begin to look at some of the garments of the priesthood. These garments were for the high priest and his son. These are the ones that would be serving in the tabernacle. They were to be set apart for God. And now the garments, of course, that they wore are going to be mentioned, and they're going to be those that are to be set apart for the Lord. And notice there in chapter 28, verse 1 to 4, I won't read all these, but it's repeated three times. Once in verse 1, once at the end of verse 3, and once again at the end of verse 4. It says that he may minister to me as priest. As instructions being given about Aaron and, and his sons about serving here, God repeats three times in these four verses that he may minister to me. That's important, I think, because we oftentimes think of ministry as being something that, well, that might, that might elevate me a little bit. Well, if I can do that, but people are really going to look at me differently, that's going to really up my game. That's going to really elevate me. And we can look at ministry as being something that can be self-serving, that can be done with a, a personal or, or hidden agenda. And yet, God makes it very clear, listen, when you do this, you're, you're to do it to me. You're not doing this to have better street cred among your bros out there. You're not to do this to be acknowledged or praised. You're to do this to me and for me. And that's what all ministry is. Ministry is, is service. We think of ministry as being something, ooh, the, the minister gets to do this. But ministry is just serving the Lord. And God says, as you do that, you're doing that to me. Everything we do, Paul says, 
do unto the Lord and not unto men. We're to keep that before us in all that we're doing. God, whatever I'm setting out to do, I want to do this unto you. If this is something that really doesn't bring any glory or honor to you, then I, I need to really rethink if I need to do that or not. It should be done to the Lord's honor. And so God makes it clear here in chapter 20 in those first four verses that he may minister to me. Well, we look at the different parts of the high priest's garments now. First up, verse 5, the ephod. And so here's just kind of the garment that the priest is going to wear. The ephod was like a bit of an apron that went right over the priest, over shoulders, is open on the sides. And on the ephod, if you look up at the top there on the shoulders, it says there's onyx stones with six tribes on each. So on that ephod, there was to be an onyx stone on the shoulder. One shoulder had six Tribe names, the other shoulder had the other six tribe names, all right? And so that was sitting on the ephod there. And that's a great picture, I think, for us, that these names of the tribes, it says they were to be engraved on it, right? And I think about, you know, what God does is, is that he, you know, he engraves our name, you know? It, it's not something that he forgets or passes over, in a sense. It says in Isaiah, um, oh, maybe I didn't put this verse up there, okay, Let's get that back. <clears throat> it says in Isaiah forty nine sixteen, See, I've inscribed you or engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Our names are not something that are to be erased. He's engraved our names on the palm of, our, uh, of his hands. And so these names were to be engraved on that onyx stone and sitting on the place of strength, the shoulders there. The high priest, this is Jesus, you know, places us there in a position of strength in him. And then in chapter 28, verse 15, we move on to the next part of the garments of the priesthood, and that's the breastplate. And the breastplate had 12 stones on it. Each stone had the name of a tribe of Israel on it, all right? And so the priests were to have the names of the tribes on his shoulders, the ephod, and over the heart. Shoulders, place of strength. The heart, the place of affection. It's again a fitting reminder of Jesus who not only carries us, but he cares for us, his affection for us. And in the breastplate was this thing called the Urim and the Thummim, which means lights and perfections. We don't know exactly what these were, but we do know, as explained, that they were connected with the breastplate and that they were used to obtain guidance from the Lord. All right? And so this breastplate is oftentimes called, as it is in verse 15, the breastplate of judgment, because this Urim and Thummim seem to be used to kind of gather understanding from the Lord here. Chapter 28, the rest of it goes on to talk about other garments. Chapter 29, we look at the consecration of the priests. Aaron and his sons are now being set aside, consecrated, set apart for ministry unto the Lord. And I like this. Go to chapter 29. I love this picture here. Chapter 29, verse 22. Here in this consecration ceremony for Aaron and his sons, Moses is taking various sacrifices, sprinkling blood even upon Aaron and his sons and the priesthood there for service. But here in chapter 29, verse 22, it says this. Also, you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration, one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. 
and you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons. And I would be saying, that is gross. I don't want to hold on to that stuff. But that's what they're called to do. Place in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. You shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire to the Lord. So in this consecration ceremony, in preparing the priest for service, set them apart, there was this wave offering they were to do. All the insides of the sacrifice, speaking of the, 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 the rich kind of inward parts represents Christ and his deity and the bread now that's also placed in there represents Christ and his humanity the, the bread of life that comes down from heaven and the priests were to hold all these parts of the sacrifice and they were to wave them they're standing before the altar and here they got this picture of Jesus in their hands the bread the inward parts they got this picture of Jesus in their hands before the priest and the altar the place of ministry and it's a great picture because in ministry, we're to have our hands full of Jesus. So oftentimes we get our hands full of ministry, stuff, work, burdens. And we fail to realize it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. I want to I serve you. And in this wave offering, they're continually just placing Jesus between them and the place of ministry, the place of work, the altar. And it's the way it should be for us. In all that we do, whatever God has called you to do, whatever God has, has, has placed in your path to serve the Lord with, may you always keep Jesus between you and the place of ministry. Don't get it backwards. Don't do the work and say, okay, Lord, we'll bring you into this later. May Jesus always be between us and the place of, of ministry. Always needs to be that intimacy with Jesus before we're serving and carrying out the work of ministry. And so that's pictured really neatly, I think, with that wave offering and the contents that the priest has in his hands. Well, chapter 30 deals with a bit more of the articles of furnishing of the tabernacle. So here we get to the, art, uh, the altar of incense, chapter 30, verse 1 to 10, and that's that right before the Holy of Holies. That was the place where they'd burn incense a sweet fragrance going up before the Lord, all right? And in the Bible, incense began to be a picture of prayer. Psalm 141, verse two, so that my prayer be set before his incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And then, out in the courtyard that we saw outside the tabernacle, just as you go past the bronze altar, you hit the bronze laver now. And that was where the priests would keep themselves ceremonially clean. They were clean, set apart, at their consecration ceremony, they're set apart for the Lord, they're clean, but now they need to be ceremonially clean as they're handling sacrifices, as they're doing all this stuff, they're gonna get gross, right? They need to wash up. And so there's a bronze laver there. Now as believers, Jesus has cleansed us, all right? We're made new, but we get defiled by things and need to be washed. And the laver pictures for us, I think, the, the word of God. It tells us in Psalm 119, verse nine, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. John fifteen three, You are already clean, Jesus says, because of the word which I have spoken to you. And how we need to be in the word of God and just keeping ourselves clean, keeping ourselves on track from things that might otherwise defile us. Well, chapter 31 
goes on to talk about, again, the, the different artists and builders that would be used in the tabernacle, a reminder of the Sabbath law. But chapter 32 now, skip over to there, because chapter 32 is kind of one of those defining moments here in the nation of Israel. Because while Moses is up on the mountain receiving all this great instruction from the Lord, the people, too afraid to go up, remember they said earlier, we didn't cover it, but they said earlier, Moses, you go. We can't go up there and face that God lest we die, right? You go, Moses. So Moses is up there receiving this instruction from the Lord about the building of the tabernacle and all these things. And they start to think, he's been gone too long. Is this Moses ever going to come back again? And so a great party breaks out in the camp. Moses is told that it's time for him to go back because the people have corrupted themselves. So they think Moses ain't coming back. They build an an idol for themselves to say, let's say this is the God that's brought us out of the land. This will be the God that will lead us now because we don't know if Moses is ever going to come back. But God speaks to Moses and says it's time to come back. Moses comes down. And as he's coming down, he hears partying going on, right? He's like, "Mm, that's not what's supposed to be happening there. That doesn't sound good here, right? What's going on? He comes down, he sees his scene, and he's furious, and he breaks the tablet. He throws these, the, these two tablets of the, the commandments down on the ground, and they break. And then he takes the idol, he crushes it down into powder, sprinkles it on the water, and passes it around to drink. You want to you wanna fellowship with this thing? Well, here you go, take it in. And he gives him a drink of it. And he asks for people to choose whether they're on the Lord's side or not. And says the sons of Levi separate themselves in the Lord. We're not sure if others did as well, but the Levites are, are identified as those that, that separate. And then they go out under Moses' instruction to go out and slay many in the camp under Moses' direction. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds like, wow, that's heavy, man. People were slaughtering that day. But in the same way, we look at it and have to think, if you had a tumor you know, in your body, you're not gonna take that lightly. You're not gonna go, well, we'll just, you know, Let's just nurture that a little bit. Let's just see if that's going to be okay. No, you're going to want to do business with it. You're going to want to get that thing out. You're going to want to cut that thing open and get it out of there, right? You're going to want to do surgery on it. And so it's the same way these people would have been a cancer in the nation. They, they were after just a, a number of days already leading the people away from God to serve an idol. After all that they've seen that God's done, it didn't take them long. And so these people would have been a cancer in the nation and they needed to go. So God sees to it that they go and he leads Moses in that. Well, chapter 33, Moses now gets a greater glimpse of God. He continues to to meet with God. It says in chapter 33, verse 18, look over there with me. Chapter 33, verse 18, turn those pages, get yourself awake here. We're going to wrap up very shortly here. Don't worry. Um, all right, let's see here. Yeah, we won't be much longer. Okay, 33 verse 18 says, And he said, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be. While my glory passes by, that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand 
and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. No man shall live, he says, if they see me. And yet, here we sing today, Lord, I want to see you. How does that work? How do we see the Well, I do believe, you know, that there's that grace of the Lord. And the more that we see the Lord in a sense, yes, we may not see a physical appearance of God. But the more that we look to the Lord, the more that we see God manifest in our life, guess what? The more that we're just dying to self, which is a good thing. No man shall see me and live. Well, Jesus says, if anyone desires to come out to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so it's about dying to self. And the more that we see Jesus, the more that we are dying to self, the more that we're dying to self, the more that we're going to see the Lord. The more that we're going to see him at work in our lives. And so Moses desires, God, I want to I wanna see I want to see you. I mean, show me your glory, he says. God says, I can't do that, but I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock and I'll pass by. And you'll see kind of the, the afterglow. And so the Lord does. And notice in verse 34 now, verse 5, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no, man, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So that's interesting. God says, I'm going to pass by and you'll see kind of the afterglow. But yet, what does God do? He gives him a revelation of his name and nature and character. This is what God does. He reveals his nature and character. I'm merciful. He says, I'm gracious. I'm long-suffering. I'm good. I, I, I'm abounding in goodness and truth. And I keep mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's how God reveals himself to Moses. I love that. It's through a word. It's through a revelation of who he is. Not what he looks like, but a revelation of who he is. And the new tablets are made. And the covenant is renewed now in verses 10 to 18 of chapter 34. And the covenant is renewed not for legalism and pressure, but for protection and blessing. Well, chapters 35 to 40 now. We're not going to go through all those. But it's really just a, a, a review. It's kind of take two. Everything's completed now. And basically, they go through the steps Moses takes in carrying out the instruction for the construction of the tabernacle. Look at chapter 40. And we'll read this in ending here. Verse 17 to 21. And it came to pass, chapter 40, verse 17, it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put, its, put in its bars and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put, on the, put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 34, skip over there. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So, lots of ups and downs for Israel. And they're not over yet. But the book of Exodus ends in a good place with God now having a place where he can dwell among them. He provided a place where he could simply be with them. It says in John 1 verse 17, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt there in John 1 17 is that word tabernacled. So in other words, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. Just as God established his tabernacle in Exodus, he sent his son Jesus now to be this tabernacle with us that we might again be brought into right relationship with God. The story of Exodus is that of deliverance out of bondage and it's what God desires to do for each and every one of us. To deliver us from the bondage of sin and of this world and bring us into right relationship with him that, that he might come and take his rightful place at the center of our lives. That's where the tabernacle was to be. That place that would be the center of their camp where they could come and just see the glory of God and meet with God. That's what God has for each and every one of us and it's accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Well, we're gonna play a little video. In fact, Cole, if you wanna help, or oh no, Isaac's back there, just with sound here because we're gonna play a little video. If you got kids in kids club, um, Oh, you got a few minutes. If you want to watch this video, it's about four minutes. And then um, you can grab your kids and then we'll dismiss. But um, let me pray and then watch this video. This will just kind of do a little recap of what we talked about in a neat way. And then just set us up for our study next week. All right? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time together tonight here where we can just, again, spend time in your word. And in so doing, we just get to spend time with you. Because right here, you've revealed yourself to us through your word here and we just want more of you and thank you for your son jesus who came to tabernacle among us to come and die on a cross to forgive us of our sin to pay the penalty for our sin that we could be clothed in the righteousness of christ we don't need a priest we don't need a high priest because we have that in jesus now and we thank you for life that you've given us for the forgiveness of sin and may we continue to walk in you and with you in all that we do we pray this in your name jesus Amen.